So welcome everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Hari bol. Appreciate the effort to climb the mountain here on everyone's part. But my general uh, advice is that if it was difficult, then you need to do it more often. <laughs> it's good for you, little exercise. But this is uh, one of the of the of two of the highest peaks on our property. And this is about a little over 1,100 feet here. And if you look this way, you can see the Blue Ridge Mountains. There's a famous um, spot up here, Chimney Rock. On your way to Asheville, Chimney Rock is it's famous. You know, you go in and you go up an elevator through the through the rock. You know, come out on the top, and it's so you can see Chimney Rock from here. Hmm. You can't see the cars and the tourist aspect, but you can see the face of the rock. Um, so this is like the, the foothills to the Appalachian Trail, really. Hmm? And as I say, this is one of two. This is this is the south uh, end of our property, um, the beginning of the south end. It goes back this way about half a mile or so on top, and then it goes pretty far to the west as well. Um, and it also goes quite far to the east here. Down this slope, there's another valley, a beautiful valley that goes north and south, and then there's a ridge that if you were to go into the valley and go up, you go over the ridge, and over that ridge, there's another valley running north and south there, so it's pretty extensive both east and west and to the south. We're kind of in the middle of the property, really, although we're on the south mountain. Hmm? The south end is quite far that way. Last night, and a couple of nights earlier, we were in, a, in the Central Valley, which is straight off of this uh, slope to the north here. If we were to go down this slope, you'd end up where we, where we were last night, and then there's another mountain to the north straight ahead. So that mountain also ascends to this same height, about 1,100 feet. Hmm? In fact, if you stand at the barn and then you look out, you, you, you'll see a mountain in the distance looks pretty far away, and it is, and that's the other peak to our property. So just to give you some idea where you are tonight, <laughs> and uh, such is the lay of the land. And then otherwise, this is the area where we hope to um, erect a Pushpa Samadhi for Prabhupada. Pushpa Samadhi means, like, I've saved the flowers and flower petals from Prabhupada's garland that, that uh, when he was put into Samadhi in Vrindavan all these years, looking for the place to establish a, a satellite, if you will, push for Samadhi for, for Prabhupada. So we expect to do that here. And uh, hopefully we'll do it sooner rather than later and use it as an interim temple, is my idea. So we'll bring the deities, Gaur and Radha Madhava, here. And then when the temple, the larger temple, is built, which is over this way, if you go down this way, you'll come up to the pasture and climb up the pasture and then into the hardwood forest is the temple site. When that's built, then we'll bring the deities there, and then we'll establish the Pushpa Samadhi here. And around here, we'll have some monastic cabins also. To, so they'll tend to the to the Samadhi and the interim temple. And these are our, say, immediate plans after finishing uh, the barn, which is imminent, I hope. I depend on somebody for all of these things. And he has a lot of other people to deal with, so <laughs> uh, I'm waiting in line for his mercy that we may proceed. But I, as I say, I appreciate your effort to scale the mountain and uh, 
It's a very beautiful setting as the sun sets here on our day. We'll ask for any questions. Are there any questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, what inspired you to do this? Okay, well, that's a good question, I guess. Fair enough. Um, um, I'll have to back up a little bit. You'll have to hear about me <laughs> to some extent. Not my favorite topic, but um, I... Um, you know, by force of circumstance, I uh, uh, left ISKCON about 30 years ago. And um, Shudar Marsh, he uh, asked me, he said, you should, I asked him, what service can I do? He said, you know everything your prophet has given you, everything, told you everything. So if they don't want you in ISKCON because of your affinity for me, then you have to go and Start something. Hmm. Start a mission. So that's what I tried to do, and um, and I um, I first thought I should I should write um, try to write. I hadn't ever written anything except a letter, but um, at that time I I you know I was famous for distributing Prophet's books, but at that time the BBT wouldn't sell me Prophet's books, so it wasn't a popular thing at that time to be um, outside of the corporate ISKCON, but so I started to write, and um, and then, um, you know, what do you do? You try to open temples, and you do what Prabhupada did, you know, but that's not so easy. And, and I'm not a very good uh, manager type of a person. I'm kind of a more brahminical and inspired person um, or inspirational person. I need someone to organize my inspired side. And um, so at a certain point, I thought I should. I shouldn't bother to open temples and try that. I'll just write. I'll try to make a con literary contribution uh, to to the overall community. And there are other people that were traveling around and initiating and so forth. And um, so I decided I wanted to find a like a nice setting that would correspond with my writing hmm? and settle there with a few uh, devotees. Some of those devotees are here with me now. That was about... Um, about 20 years ago, and um, we ended up uh, finding a place in Northern California. And so, as I wrote from there, and it was an, it's an idyllic setting like this, a smaller property, but it's very rural and very beautiful and scenic and so forth. But the problem was, as I wrote, then people, you know, got in touch with me and they wanted to be connected with me and so forth. So, at a certain point, I caved in so to speak, and I began to initiate uh, disciples again. And um, and um, and then I uh, kind of conceived of a different model, if you will, for Krishna consciousness in, in North America. Hmm? I could see that what Prabhupada's temples were like at a certain point and how they were dynamic and vital and so forth when they were opening and so forth. And in my estimation, they weren't like that now. They were different. They were, the deities were being served nicely. They had an economy through catering to the, preaching to the indigenous uh, or, or the uh, ethnic Hindus and so forth. But um, I thought uh, that perhaps that indicated, um, among other th 
insights that I had that, that a different model would be, you know, desirable and so forth. So I started to think about that, and um, and I came up with this kind of idea for having, which Prabhupada wanted rural type of, you know, communities and so forth. And, and the community in Northern California is very beautiful, and it's almost finished, <laughs> but... Uh, but it doesn't lend itself to having a large community around it. It's, it lends itself for, some, for monks to live there and to hold really nice festivals. But it's too rural for people to live nearby and have work and so forth. So um, as that became very successful for what it is, I started to think that I would like to do this on a bigger scale. So... Um, um, meanwhile, one of my disciples came to me and said, Guru Maharaj, I think you should have a place in Central or South America where you can write in the wintertime and just be peaceful. <laughs> so I told her that would be, f- she's sitting right there. <laughs> I, told her, I told her that would be great. Talk to me when Krishna sends us some money and resources Anyway, she talked. She didn't let the idea die. So one of my other disciples, Sham Gopal, said, "Why don't we go there and just look around?" I said, "Okay, I don't mind if you can pay for the ticket. We'll go to Central America, and we went to Costa Rica, and then we just met this man who happened to have um, a beautiful, extremely beautiful mountain jungle farm that he had." was losing because his son had sold some cows to somebody and the guy gave him a bad check or something like that. And so they got, the the whole property was mortgaged by the Cattlemen's Association, which is an association of attorneys, lawyers, and at 30% interest. And so they were about to lose the farm. So we he showed us around. We really liked it. So we, we told him that... Um, we would come up with the money to pay off the lawyers and take part of the property and leave him part of the property. So he liked the idea, and we had this wild negotiation with the lawyers and whatnot without speaking Spanish. Somehow we made our way through, and we didn't have any money. So we came back to America, and I said, it's a great idea, but we don't have any money. And I started telling other people about it, and so the money came. And so we went back in a month, and we... We started to develop that project, and it was a much bigger project. It's about 140 acres or something like that. So I thought this is the place where I can have, you know, a large. I can serve more devotees because most devotees aren't going to be monastics, and um, and the place in California didn't, didn't facilitate having a large community around it. Um, so. I started to develop it with that in mind, but then there are obstacles to that. The obstacles were, well, it's in another country, and although it's not far away, and it's very beautiful, of course, but to live there on a permanent basis, there are visa issues, work issues, and so on and so forth. So the idea of having a larger community there started to fade, and and the land started to speak to me over the various visits as to what it was meant to be used for. So we established a, a nice temple there. Um, the main temple isn't built yet, but a nice interim temple and many cabins. We have our dairy there, and uh, like we do in California, we have our own dairy everywhere. And, uh, you know, we grow our own rice and dal and everything. 
so forth and um, a nice monastic community and it's a great place for pilgrimage so a lot of devotees come in the winter time and spend time there with me and and uh, it's kind of like a, like I said like a pilgrimage like going to Vrindavan or something like that um, but it doesn't let this, so I still didn't have you know the facility for like a, a community that I thought would be um, an extension of my original kind of rural idea so Meanwhile, I had been coming to North Carolina because Archon City and Carnamrit had been asking me to come, and so I came and, and I would speak like this, you know. And gradually, some devotees were inspired, and I told them that they should have something of their own that they could center around. And I told them this would be a good place in Western North Carolina, which is very, very beautiful, much better than Eastern North Carolina in many respects. So. So finally, um, some devotees took that seriously, and, and they started looking for land and so forth. And, of course, I like to look for land, so I just did that too. And <laughs> it's one of my pastimes. And uh, so then we, I came out here, and we, we, we looked around, and I thought to myself that I have no money. They don't have any money, but it's fun doing this, and we probably won't find a place that we want either because it has to be a place that when I walk on it, I have to have it, something like that. And I don't think that's going to happen. So, well, we looked at a few places, and that was what it was like. It was, you know, I could give any number of reasons why I didn't, didn't like it and it wouldn't work. And and uh, the uh, real estate guy took us to a place across the street from here, and it was pretty nice, but it was limited in some way. And for some reason, I looked over at here. I said, what's over there? And... Uh, and so he then talked to the owner and found out that they had this property as well. And so was there more to it than that? Yeah. Then we then we came. So we said, well, let's go see that. And when we walked on it, as soon as I walked on the property, I'm, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> I've got to have this property. For, Krishna wants this property. Yeah. So, and it was, you know, my sense of it was contagious. So it quickly caught on to everybody else. And I, it just out of nowhere, then the money came to, to uh, to buy it, and I think we bought it a month later or something like that. Then we, we made an offer. We had no money. We made an offer. That's my style too. <laughs> and uh, and and all devotees from North Carolina um, uh, raised the money to make the down payment and so forth. So, so that's how we got it. And my idea was that North America needs a different kind of a model. And um, and it's not you know it's not something that Prabhupada hadn't thought about and so forth. But a number of community rural communities have been attempted, but mostly they've been done with the idea of having Prabhupada in the center, which is a good idea. But then what happens is like all kinds of everybody has different ideas of what that means. It turns into a you know usually not a very uh, cohesive group with a concerted vision and so on and so forth. So um, I knew this would be successful because if you if, if you have one person that, that has a vision and inspires others naturally, if you can find that person, that's the hardest element to find. Buying property is not that hard or getting money or coming up with some plan of where to put buildings and so forth. So so as I you know, became that for persons here, and so forth, and more and more ingredients, uh, necessary ingredients, have come 
forward. But my basic idea is, is as I say, to have a, uh, a different model. Because I don't think that, that the, the ISKCON temples that we help to build and so forth are working in that way. And, um, and um, they're not facilitating the Western devotees as they used to. And, and they're not inviting very much to the Western public either. They don't have that kind of a um, face, if you will. So to me, that was not something that Prabhupada would be happy with. And so I felt driven by, by that to, um, as I say, make a different alternative. So that's what I want to do here. And uh, this property is large, and so it lends itself. It's nicely divided by the natural, by the topography into different outdoor rooms, so to speak. We could be here and something could be going on in several other places of the property and we wouldn't know it. So it lends itself to to facilitating devotees with different psychologies, just like manaprastas or householders or, or brahmacharis, for example. Um, and it certainly lends itself for a, 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 a dairy and growing food and uh, we have plenty of, of room for that. So that kind of sustainable element, which is something that, of course, Prabhupada wanted, also that type of a example. Um, and the, the surrounding area, county, is, is affordable, livable. People can live here and have work and walk in here and be in their own world, so to speak. So I felt it was a very good place to that could be populated by devotees and that and I have a certain way as you may have noticed of speaking about the philosophy and whatnot that um, I think has some um, uh, has the potential to uh, be able to I have some potential to be able to communicate with a western thoughtful semi-educated uh, spiritually oriented public and my books are like that too so um so I thought we could, uh, yeah, make a different type of uh, presentation. And my idea is to have several of these in North America. Um, and, uh, and all I need is a few sannyasis and a little bit of funding. And then um, um, I would do one upstate New York, maybe, maybe like Madison, Wisconsin, and Midwest, or Boulder, Colorado, and places like this. And they would be located in proximity to major metropolises, this one here is only three hours from Atlanta, which is not very far. My property and our property in uh, Odaria, Northern California, is three hours from San Francisco. And people come up, you know, regularly for, and they come and they have to spend time there. They can't come for a Sunday feast and go home. They have to come, and they partake in the environment. And the environment itself is seems spiritual. It's just peaceful and take some time to get there and uh, it's a, a bit a bit of a mini pilgrimage if you will so it's not just a drop-in kind of you know for for Sunday type of a program which just has its advantages that that does too but this is different and so we're close to Atlanta we're um, we're um, you know, close to the, you know, the the largest city of North Carolina Charlotte and and the whole what is it called the triangle and research triangle in the east here is quite a populated and educated area too. It's close, and 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 uh, things are a little more condensed. I'm finding here on the East Coast, population-wise, than on the West Coast uh, in Northern California, where I am. So, 
Um, it's uh, people come here from have come visit from D.C., from New York, from Chicago. It's 12 hours away. It's not far. Like in Northern California, where our ashram is, people come from Portland all the time, and it's like how many hours away? 12 hours away. So for all of our festivals, so so it's a good location, and it's a it's as you were appreciating a very beautiful setting, and I want to do everything here that uh, that. Um, needs to be done to facilitate all types of um, people in all stages of life and it supports them in their pursuit of uh, Krishna consciousness. And I think we can we can do that. We can make, have a very dynamic, uh, spiritually vital community that that is that devotees feel very good about. Hmm? They feel very happy to be participated in and and this and 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 I think that uh, because the it has some um, focus on internal progress, and it also has a, and the whole place is supposed to speak to this, as inviting to the to the public, because we take into consideration quasi, if you will, spiritual sensibilities of the public that we should, that are supportive of what we do, the sattvic lifestyle, the sustainability, and that, that type of thing, that... Um, that is uh, popular and thought to be spiritual in and of itself. So I think we can have a very uh, a kind of uh, dynamic rural community here. And then I, my other part of my plan is is to have um, centers, small centers in in um, in in Atlanta and uh, you know in Raleigh and in Chicago and so forth that are that are different that than um, than this obviously, and they they're places where people want to. Stop in during lunch and do some japa, like you know, for half an hour or something like that. Um, yeah, really. <laughs> um, so, you know, with the bookstore and that kind of thing, and um, and then on top of that, my latest addition to the um, reincarnation of Krishna consciousness <laughs> in North America is also to have some um, houses in at in very close proximity to major universities and I would situate couples uh, or devotees there that would have uh, ongoing programs at uh, at those universities so I'm very much about um, preaching in North America uh, and uh, and making a uh, I think it's a very good time to preach and that and uh, you can make a very um, um, living vital uh, essential type of a Presentation with the emphasis on the devotees themselves being the magnet, if you will, by their character, by their example, which speaks louder than precept. And I, you know, by Krishna's grace, I, I think I helped a lot of devotees here in North Carolina to feel very, very enthusiastic about spiritual life and that, 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 that there's much room for them to make progress and much room for them to make a contribution to the to the public in the way that as older devotees, even the way they had thought originally when when they joined um, Prabhupada's mission, and, and they're attracting new devotees, so something like that. So it's 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 my story a little bit, and uh, a little bit of my vision, and you know, and it includes you know, I I can get Prabhupada's books now. Of course, <laughs> they've changed their policy from the BBT, but but I, I ended up becoming a you know pretty fairly prolific in writing about. Krishna consciousness and and using a you know my own language if you will and cultural 
sensibilities and analogies to explain things and so forth. And I think it has some currency hmm, with the modern um, American public. So I'm hopeful that, uh, that as these, this kind of project develops, we'll be able to realize those kind of results and set a nice example. Um, Prabhupada always told me that if anybody, if you, if you have a difference from others, which sometimes we had amongst ourselves um, as Prabhupada's disciples, that you should try to set a better example yourself. And, and if, if it's better and other people are sincere, they'll want to follow. So as I began, by force of circumstances, I had leave this gone a long time ago. And so I'm trying to set a different example as hmm. best I can. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. Any any follow up from that? You had. To... Um, so it is is this is this um, an, a sort of manifestation of Varnashram that Prabhupada wanted? Yeah, I think that's a kind of a um, a. Um, I, what I want to say is that yes, but I think that when Prabhupada used that term, it, he used it very loosely, and um, and what I, what I mean by that is he kind of was advocating an agrarian-based lifestyle for his devotees that would uh, be uh, more supportive of their uh, practices and serve as a as a kind of a a cushion from the world and an example at the same time um, for the world of how to live well simply and what do we say simple simple living and, and high thinking something like that so yeah it's 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 like that you know I need to do that I mean I those are the two things probably wanted book distribution and rural community so I, I did my share of the book distribution <laughs> for better or worse so now I have to try to do this side as well, hmm? and, um, and we've had some good success here. I'm quite enthusiastic about it. Um, so, so many nice devotees helping. So, a couple of years we didn't have this, so it's it's gone along. Those of you who've been around, it's gone a long way in a couple of years. Yes, you kind of uh, surprised me. Uh, <clears throat> I think it was this morning when you were talking about how Krishna appeared in a nomadic cowherd village where mm. this uh, this uh, nomadic way of life almost has the virtue of not being attached to material situations. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we're building Sagrati, we're supposed to build the buildings out of granite, or should we stick to the <laughs> <frame>? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I, I'm not into that kind of uh, importing uh, um, uh, elements from other cultures here, but to, Use the ingredients as much as possible. Like in in Audari in California, everything's built out of redwood, and we got most of the redwood off of the forest floor that was left years ago from loggers, and we milled the milled the boards there. Have you ever seen pictures of our? Um, yeah, and uh, I have a, of course, my own idiosyncrasies, which is the hardest thing for people to, you know, have to have to get along with. But one of them is is my aesthetic sensibility is. It leans towards the Orient, uh, uh, kind of a Japanese type of aesthetic, which which I also think, to the American public, 
speaks, oh, it's something spiritual. Uh, that is kind of the way it, it talks. So, so our if you, uh, I try to incorporate that, but the, but the, but use the local, yeah, woods. We won't be bringing in uh, granite from India to build to build a temple. There's some granite here. Yeah, that's true. There's more stone here than we have in California. But yeah, to use. Uh, there's a lot of wood here on the property, and for the forest to be healthy, some of it should come down and be, be milled and, and um, incorporated into the building. In one valley here, we have about 100 hemlocks, and the hemlocks have a disease, a blithe, and so they, they're, they're dying. So I estimated about 100,000 board feet of wood, so that's a lot of wood. And the hemlock is, 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 has it's nice wood. It actually has some properties that are like uh, rot-resistant, bug-resistant, kind of like cedar and, uh, and redwood. So we'll use that. And um, I'm actually talking, we've been talking to different people. I talked to a fellow the other day about coming in with uh, horses because once you take the logs down, you have to drag them and stack them up in order to mill them. So he has a horse set up for, for that and then a, a mill that he can bring on the property. And so we're, we're looking, looking into that at this time. But um, yeah, you want to do something that looks like it belongs here, for sure. You know, Giriraj Maharaj, I'll, I got a compliment from him, you know, from, from Iskand Prabhupada's disciple. He came to visit me once at Audari in Northern California, and I showed him around. And, and this is before we had built the temple. It's a really nice temple that we built there. And he looked around and he said, I'll tell you honestly, at my age, he said, if I was became interested in becoming a monk, there's no place in North America that I would feel comfortable going, but I could live here. That <laughs> was a nice compliment. So he could, he's a smart man. He could understand what I was doing, could understand my vision, and he could say, oh, yeah, this make, makes sense. Like I, I also, like I said, I wanted a place that might, would, that would resonate with what, am I, what I'm writing. When I write, people read it, and they come and see where he lives, and, and it makes sense, and so forth. So, and I, 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 I have words, too. Like, I call us, like, amongst other things here, we'll have a monastery. Uh, rather than, I tend not to use the word ashram, because monastery invokes a different sensibility in the minds of the American public than an ashram. Ashram kind of brings up, like, 1960s, um, you know, Something like that, but a monastery brings up this like, oh yeah, a monastery. That like, there's a place for that. There must be some beautiful in it, some beautiful area, and the monks are there, and it's all worked out, and the economy, and something like that. So, so um, yeah. What else? Let's down in the valley. That's part of the uh, thing too, right? That's a good good point. That's um, what I want to do is establish a like a retreat center, where people can come, and they can rent the retreat center from us, and we will supply the housing, and the prasadam, and those will be people from alternative America, if you will. That many of well, a number of my uh, students are yoga teachers, for example, and so they sometimes take. 25 students on a retreat for a week, you know, like a, what would you call it, like a immersion, right, retreat. And um, and 
um, that's a popular kind of idea and other things along those lines like an Ayurvedic retreat or this there's all kinds of things out there that are, that are all types of retreats that are facilitating different alternative um, healings or uh, um, uh, quasi-spiritual or spiritual ideas and so forth. And that will be uh, serve two purposes. And that is one, that the public has the facility to come in and, and provides income for us. It can be quite lucrative and we don't have to do anything other than what we do so to speak, we serve them prasadam, facilitate them, and they, and then they have the chance to overflow into the, into the onto the grounds and and uh, uh, come to the temple, meet the monastics, and so on and so forth, and uh, and um, and so you both uh, interact with the public, you have an economic engine from it, and uh, and you get to share what you're you're doing in a non-confrontational way, which, believe it or not, is my style. I know it doesn't, for those of you who know me, <laughs> you might have wondered. Uh, <laughs> you know, you get older, you, you learn things. So so um, that's kind of my whole style of preaching. It's, it's I make all the points, you know, uh, anti-Mayavadam, but I do it in a non-confrontational way. I just present, well, these are two ways of thinking about it, and then it's obvious which one is better. Bhakti, or you know, I'll say, what would you rather do? Love to exist, or exist to love? So that's a way of saying, would you like Gyan Marg or Bhakti Marg? And everybody will say, well, it's better to love to exist. So you know, you should be in our group, and then and so then I explain the differences philosophically and so forth. And I don't say the other is bad. I just say, well, these are the, these are the alternatives that are out there. So you make your choice and. And I have a fair amount of conviction as to our choice, so I can speak about it in a compelling way. So it's non-confrontational in general, and the project here is like also non-confrontational. I want to interact with the public, not like we did, as I would call it, and I have, I think, in recent lectures in previous days with the kind of a mode of spiritual uh, terrorism. Prabhupada said, you know, at one point, any publicity is good publicity, which is kind of the terrorist Model. They got to get noticed somehow or other. So blow up a bomb, you know, or whatever, and and uh, bring attention. So Yasser Arafat was maybe one of the original terrorists, and later he became, of course, a politician. So times have changed. So I want to interact with the public in a way that is non-confrontational, and I also have this the idea that 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 alternative America, which many of us came out of. Uh, uh, in, in the early 60s and 70s and so forth is uh, is a huge uh, sector of the American public. It's huge. When I left ISKCON, I thought that ISKCON tends to preach to the general public. Hmm? And so the themes that they emphasize, like vegetarianism, reincarnation, anti-Advaita, Krishna's God, and so forth, which are very important themes, our themes, some of them anyway, vegetarianism, reincarnation, that are already accepted by millions of people in North America, or they have sympathy for them and so forth. So, for example, I started a magazine many years ago called Clarion Call. Hmm? And um, it was a time when, when the, the, the term New Age was coming out, actually. It was like in the 
mid eighties or something like that. And there was channeling and it was a big thing. And what's her name? Shirley Temple or somebody who was, got on there, you know, Shirley McLean out on a limb, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I did a magazine called Clarion Call and uh, we were in all the newsstands and, and whatnot. And even the, some people from the BTG contacted me and asked me, but how do you do that? And what, you know, what's your, they liked some of the articles and the way we were writing it, so that was a real compliment. But, um, but um, what was the point? Um, we, yeah, we, um, you know, what I was saying is that in the magazine, my editorial policy was to assume that people already agreed with vegetarianism, that people already agreed with reincarnation, so they weren't the, the themes that were emphasized and so forth. And, as opposed to preaching to someone from, you know, straight America or something like that with no familiarity with these types of things. So I think that that's a huge population. There's 7 million vegetarians in America and 22 million on top of that persons who say they're sympathetic to that. And that means they'd be sympathetic to many of the things that we we think about and so forth. So it's a world. When I left this guy, I thought there's, this is a world I could live in as a sannyasi and dress like this, and people wouldn't think, why are you standing on the street in your pajamas? Because I didn't have a whole mission behind me or anything like that. I was, you know, pretty much alone. And um, and I thought if I interact with them, you know, as a, s a Swami, makes sense. So I legally changed my name to Swami Triparari and, uh, and, uh, and developed a language and sensibilities to communicate with that uh, sector of the population. So... Um, when we have programs that we facilitate that as, as a retreat for people from that sector, it's a good opportunity to interact with a certain section of the the public, large section of the public that, that would feel comfortable here and wouldn't feel you know threatened or intimidated or would you know if if I, for example, as a sannyasi, if I walk in the airport or anywhere in public. There's a, you all know, have this experience, I suppose, to one extent or another. There's those people that, you know, look at you like you're weird or won't look at you. And then there's those people that go out of their way to go, hi, you know, I noticed you. And it's cool. You know, they want to say, like, you're cool, you know. So I'm out, you know, figure I might as well go after those people. There's a lot of them out there, you know. Why why go against, you know, the, the current? Why go, go upstream? And it's such a huge section. I mean, that's like 10% of America. It's 300 million, you know, or 30 million people, 25 million people. So, um, so you have, and, and this is, this to me also speaks as to the time of, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Chaitanya Leela. And Chaitanya Leela, there's a lot of interaction. Mahaprabhu was interacting with different uh, Vedantists, different types of, uh, 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 spiritual people. I mean, his main sannyasis, the trunks to the figurative tree of bhakti, that uh, the limbs of which are, you know, the trunk of which is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and then the two main branches of Advaita Nityananda, and so forth. The trunks of, the, of that is these um, Brahmananda Bharati, Keshava Bharati, uh, um, uh, and so forth. Nine different sannyasis. It's rooted in a sense in in, in renunciation. Hmm. Yeah. And it's otherworldly. But at any rate, um, my point is that they were like from different sampradayas even and so forth. This is kind of civil camaraderie, hmm, if you will, 
with other groups and disciplines and so forth that a non-confrontational approach is um, is kind of I feel in in line with and you, in, in, you know you have to, in other words Chaitanya Mahaprabhu the Goswamis they were living in the world they were really in the world for example we take Vrindavan the Vrindavan in at the time of the Goswamis Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's time and uh, if after the work of Rupa Sanatan and, and so forth in Vrindavan, if you were a king, at that time India was made up of different feudal states and kingdoms and so forth, if you were a king and you didn't have a temple for your for your Rani, for your queen, or you hadn't built a, a ghat to um, commemorate an, uh, a, a place of Krishna's pastime that Rupa Goswami, Sanatana Goswami had pointed out, for example, you weren't, you know, you weren't, you weren't anybody. It's, when you're rich, it's not how much money you have, but how much how you spend your money, what kind of art you have, you know, or so forth. So they were able to get the patronage, I want to say, for the for Vrindavan Bhakti from so many kings, hmm? Hindu kings in India. So they were very contemporary, I want to say, in their in their in their preaching. They weren't like obscure, you know, out of the main stream, if you will. And um Welcome. Hmm. And so, who's here? Oh, Jai. Welcome. And so, in North America, it, you know, you, I'm not interested in getting on the television, so to speak, in, in one sense, to, where, like, even vegetarianism is still kind of, you know, okay, but weird, different, and so forth. But it, but if but that section of the population, you can you can be, um, you can you can interact with the pe- like the people. I'm thinking like like the Goswamis would ant- interact with people. They they had enough sense of similarities, in other words, to be to believe in reincarnation and so forth. This was you know everybody did. Hmm? We're so extr- so different from the mainstream in our thinking. That it's that, that you you will that if you focus on that then you, you tend to be well more insular. Hmm? If you can if you could do this, I'm in a section of in a section of society where people believed in some of the things you already believe in, and they thought it was kind of cool that we were doing. You wouldn't be as insular, if you will, and uh, you'd be more informed and uh, more inviting, if you will. So this, I, I kind of look at it like that. So you form a community, and then you have con- connections with these other people, and you don't try to like convert them every every time. Can you say Hare Krishna? You know, it's not like that. <laughs> you know, did you get prasad? You know, I'm not evangelical at all. <laughs> so uh, you know, I just want to be a normal person and a devotee, if you will, and uh, in this context, and attract people by example, interact with them in a thoughtful way, and if they become attracted and to join. We're happy whether they do or not. We're, you know, in our own, you know, ecstasy, if you will. So that's part of the idea also to to be a force, if you will, in alternative America, which is a large section of America that um, continually makes um, headway, I think, as a, as, a, as a whole in terms of the, um, the, 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 the greater part the non-alternative part of America. They, they make advances with ideas that come up, many of which we, we resonate with. And I see devotees also, many of them 
are gravitate towards ideas in alternative America, sometimes unfortunately at the cost of their understanding of Krishna consciousness. So we want to keep both, you know, their heart very much invested in their preoccupation personally in Krishna consciousness and at the same time have an extended community beyond the devotee community that they can relate to, communicate with, interact with, and so forth, and um, be appreciated and feel that they're, that there's a, they're a part of the world, so to speak, uh, and have something to offer that makes them feel good about what they're doing. So that's part of the kind of the, the strategy. I don't know what that question was. That we, the retreat, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the retreat center is um, is good for that. People will come. They like the place. They'll they, they will economize the place, and and we'll have connections with all those the leaders of all the retreats, so to speak, right? And then they'll invite us to their retreats, and uh, and then we'll just do our thing, and and if whoever likes it, then they can join with us. So he made it tonight, and he made it up the hill too. Mm. Who all came with you? Nam Chintamani, Shyamalal. Oh, I can't see them. They're here too. Oh, I can't see them at start. Okay, well, welcome. Krishna Junior is here. Yeah. I can't see them. Haribo. So that was a mission. At least it wasn't a mission impossible. Close. Is that tonight, the s'mores? What, what is that s'mores? I keep people keep telling me about that. Now. Oh, I see. Okay. Perfect. Wow. Mm. Yeah, it sounds, sounds very alternative, yeah. <laughs> okay. So what else? Any other thoughts? Yeah, probably when you speak about Varnashram, you're speaking more about, like, really essentially, like, agrarian kind of based lifestyle as opposed to an industrial-based society. He thought that made a lot of sense, and uh, and there's a lot of people that think like that. Hmm? I often thought that if India had only, like, followed the Gandhian kind of outlook instead of Nehru's um, view, who became the first prime minister of India, and, and differed considerably from from Gandhi and his vision, and and made India, you know, the kind of kind of a Gandhi in India. But in today, with the environmental sensibilities being what they are, it would be such an example. Hmm? Uh, it would be very, uh, it would be like very attractive to to the the public in, in general. So Prabhupada had those sensibilities, and for maybe lack of a better term. He is Varnashram has other implications which are which are problematic as you know Chaitanya Mahaprabhu rejected the Varnashram and so forth and Bhag and Bhagwat Bhagwat Dharma steps on the head of, of Varnashram Dharma. But that foundation is there nonetheless and, and so that's what he wanted. That brings balance to people's material lives and so forth that they can better pursue the uh, vertical, if you will, growth of Krishna consciousness. So yeah, something like that. That's one of Prabhupada's ideas. We're trying to give it some shape here. Marsh? Yeah. Um, just before just before the festival began, uh, we were reading in Uddhva Gita, 
just before the festival began, uh, we were reading an Uddhava Gita, and we were we had just begun the uh, part in chapter seven of the eleventh canto where the um, Abhuta Brahmana is telling um, King Yadu about his twenty-four gurus. So we talked about the first guru, which is the earth, and there are two kind of two aspects, uh, what he learned from the earth. One was tolerance, and I was thinking of this question as we drove up uh, this, this evening because, you know, the, the, the example that the Acharyas uh, give is that, the, you know, you do all kinds of things to your earth, and she doesn't protest. Well, she seems to be protesting now, and I was going to ask about that. But I was thinking even better question might be about the second part, he, he discussed a different aspect of the earth, which is mountains and trees. And what he learned from the mountains and trees was a living a life of service to others. And that made me think of two things. One is the verses in at the end of the 22nd chapter of the 10th canto, where Krishna is, um, is glorifying the trees of Vrindavan because um, they've made their uh, they've completely given their lives to the service of others, given everything to others. But it also reminded me of that verse from the Venu Gita, where Radharani glorifies uh, Govardhan Hill, um, because he's he's the best he, he's the, he's the best servant of Krishna because he's giving all these things um, for Krishna's pastime. So I was just wondering if you could talk about that. I guess we've been talking about it all week, though, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> the servi- serving you're doing, ego. You're doing pretty good right now. Well, I, well, I, I was going. I just wanted to open it up for you to talk more about it. I guess I don't know. Well, I thought somehow or other, I thought finishing was a perfect segue for a week celebrating Govardhan Hill. When, 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 it, when I, yeah, when I finished, when, when he he was talking about the mountains and the trees, and I thought, and then there's this verse in Venu Gita, and it just seemed to create a perfect segue. So I just wanted to give you an opening to talk. Even more about the serving ego. Okay. Well. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, that uh, those are nice sections of the of the Bhagavatam. The twenty-second uh, is the twenty-second chapter. That's the the, the wives of the Brahmins. But, yeah, but it's mm-hmm. so the transition between it um, goes from there into Arnalila and the wives of the Brahmins. Wives of the Brahmins, uh, and then they go into the Govardhan Leela. Yeah, at the end of that section, there's some beautiful verses. I gave a lecture, very famous lecture, on the trees of Vrindavan. Hmm. Some of you may have heard that. Uh, it seems to be a very popular one. Um, and Krishna depicts the trees there in, in a very beautiful way and uh, um, as uh, givers, as you say. Hmm. And... Um, so how the natural world can be seen as as a giver and teach us about the virtues of such, I guess, is the the idea. I guess it speaks to us um, about how the um, Eastern uh, Vedanta philosophy, wherein the self um, is identified as being different from matter, is uh, very different than in the Western world when that began, if you will, when Descartes said, uh, I think, therefore I am, and he, and he started the, the dualism between consciousness and matter. 
in the Western world. Um, that um, well, it's still alive in some circles. There's a, there's a lot of the the new dualism these days. But at any rate, his basic idea was that there's a difference between the mind and matter, and he and by that he meant mind. He meant consciousness, the self, self awareness, and so forth. And that sounds very Vedantin, but but the but the difference is 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 considerable at the same time because in thinking like that, he thought nothing in the natural world, hmm, other than the human beings, had the mind, if you will, and had were any had anything different uh, that in their constitution from um, material makeup, and so by contrast. This idea of a soul being different from matter in the West ended up being a license um, for uh, for the uh, raping and pillaging of the earth and the animals and so on and so forth. That's called the environmental crisis. It has its beginnings in um, at the time of the scientific revolution and blessed by the church. Really, this is I commented about this the other day. There's a famous article, a seminal article on the which kind of the gave birth to environmental philosophy written in in the late sixties uh, or early early seventies by a fellow named Lynn White Junior. And he documents how the spiritual the environmental crisis is a spiritual crisis generated by exactly what I'm talking about. A distinction between matter and consciousness that that Left matter completely separate, separated man and women from from the natural world. So there's an alienation that we have from the world. Whereas, whereas my point is, in Eastern philosophy and in, certainly in Gaudi Vedanta, and these are examples that you're you're bringing up, that same distinction and a more clear one, if you will, is made between consciousness and matter. Hmm? And it's more clear because it it perceives consciousness throughout nature that the trees. Life is consciousness. The matter, you know, the the, the animals have souls, if you will, <laughs> uh, and so uh, it it doesn't uh, distinguishing between matter and consciousness doesn't license us to rape and pillage the world, and and uh, but rather to uh, to uh, be close, more closely identified with it. And what you're citing is examples of of how it is to be seen as our our teacher those are nice ideas and i do emphasize those at times that the the idea that of of that we are a serving entity by nature hmm, um, uh, is something that the whole world is speaking to us about if we're listening to books like the bhagavatam and the gita are just meant to kind of like Give us a focus, and then we look at the world. We should see that and how it's speaking like that. The teaching is not limited to the book, um, and so ours is a culture of 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 of, um, of being. I guess also, I want to say, in an ongoing kind of teachable moment, thinking that the, the school that we've enlisted in is such that we will be teachers forever, and um, and so again, um, even the natural world. Can 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 teach us about service. So these are examples. The Earth serves and doesn't, and it tolerates 
I think a word about tolerance is is in order because, um, as you said, Maraj, the earth seems to be tolerating everything, but then sometimes it's, it doesn't tolerate also. Sometimes it erupts, right? It cracks and it volcanoes and and so forth. And, Super uh, typhoons. Right, right. So, uh, so there's there's we we should uh, the standard that Mahaprabhu mandated that of our tolerance is interesting because he says tolerant like a tree, and if you follow that out in the writings, for example, of Bhaktivinotagar, you find that the tolerance turns actually to compassion, mm. to showing kindness to others. Mm. Um, um, as the tree does, it tolerates the elements but it also show, gives shelter to people, even if they're cutting it down. He shades, the tree shades them hmm, while doing so, without complaint. So so it's a call uh, for compassion, but as I say, with regard to tolerance, it's important to note that, as you did, that while the earth tolerates everything, it doesn't tolerate everything. Hmm? And so there's a place... And we should be careful about this as we progress in, in our spiritual life, uh, not to misunderstand statements from the text and, and apply them in such a way that will be counterproductive for our spiritual life. Because along with being tolerant, as I've sometimes mentioned, is also the mandate or the idea that you should find a favorable environment for your practice. So what I teach is, and I think what the Bhagavatam teaches, is that you find a favorable place for your, for your, envir- for your practice and then tolerate within that. Hmm? And they, you don't have to look for tolerance. Sometimes, well, it's kind of funny to, <laughs> funny to me, but sometimes I meet some of my gobblers and say, they tell me, you should, you know, you should join ISKCON because then you'd have to tolerate so many things. And I said, I got plenty to tolerate. I don't need, I need to invite anything more. I, I'm uh, trying to create a favorable environment, and then I'll tolerate within that. So this is important to note. Hmm? So... Like you, you're at school. You know, we could say you should be tolerant. It's a good quality. You know, tolerance is a, is a virtue. But the environment is there. You're finding unconducive to your to your interest, your ideal. So better to find a favorable environment and then tolerate within that. Like you got to tolerate listening to me sometimes. You know, but, you know. <laughs> so that's maybe not as bad at times. But um, I'm sure it can be trying. But but anyway, that's so that's an important point. Um, um, but yeah, the earth is is that's a beautiful section. There it's mentioned uh, in that section of the Uddhava Gita that you refer to that not by one guru alone can one become perfect. It's an interesting statement, a powerful statement of the Bhagavatam. Of course, Jiva Goswami explains that that, that 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 there should be one initiating guru, and then there may be a number of siksha gurus, and all these elements of the nature are like the siksha gurus in, for the Abhidut. And uh, in the in 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 the Bhagavatam, and they're all teaching him certain lessons. It's a it's a very instructive section of the book that t- t- tends to speak about kind of make the book more al- uh, alive, if you will, and uh, and um, tell us how how to maybe how to how to how to how to read it in in, in a living way. Um, so. So serving ego, yeah, this is um, this is all important, and this is how, as I say, the natural world spoke to Mahaprabhu. So if the world does start to talk to us, that's what it should be saying. As I mentioned, someone told me the grass was speaking to her, and I wondered what is the message. 
what's a little different than the Bhagavatam, so they might say that, but we're listening for for confirmation of an extension of those ideas. Hmm. What else? Yeah. Um, in the vision, we propagate the message of Mahaprabhu in the United States. What is the, what is the order of the view? <coughs> What book or what? Yeah, what? What is the order of book you give to people? This is the this is the way into the different things like yoga, like you know, what would be the orders of books that you give? Bhagavad Gita is a good book. Hmm. Bhagavad Gita is a beautiful book. I mean, I wrote a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, and I didn't intend to. I had, I always liked the Bhagavatam more than the Gita. That was always my favorite, the Bhagavatam. Of course, I read the Gita a number of times and distributed many of them, but I was always much more uh, fascinated by the Bhagavatam. But there was always these devotees that said they were Gita Bhaktas, like they just really knew the Gita, they really loved the Gita, and they said everything's in the Gita. So at one point I reflected on, on the first morning walk that I went on with Prabhupada. And on that walk, um, I think it was maybe Jai Tirtha was there, and he said, uh, "And Prabhupada is here, and he's you know with us, and he's selling your books." And Prabhupada turned to me and he, he quoted a couple of verses from the from the Gita hmm, about explaining the Gita to others and so forth and the virtues of that. And so somehow that came to my mind, and I thought, you know, I never really did justice to the Gita. I should study it more. In, 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 oh, I read it many times uh, in, in detail. And then as I took that up, I, I, I saw the obvious uh, you know, connection between the verses. And so which Prabhupada doesn't do in his commentary. He doesn't really connect the verses. He kind of goes off in his own ecstasy and comments on each verse. So I thought maybe I'll just write a little something to show how the verses connect from one to the other and chapter to chapter and what is the cohesive nature of the of the book and so forth. Uh, I'll just write a little something. But then as I began to write and study and so forth, I, I found the first chapter was so fascinating. It was I thought, wow, that's the best chapter of the whole Bhagavad Gita, the first chapter. <laughs> this is honestly, honestly my experience. I thought the first chapter is the best chapter. That's, I didn't realize that. It's incredible. And a lot of people say, you know, skip the first chapter, start with chapter two, you know, and that's where it really gets going. And so, um, you know, I... The, the little comments that I was going to write turned into a little bit more than I had, had thought, and then I went into the second chapter, and I commented on that, and then I thought, and this has happened, I thought, that's the best chapter. And, I, <laughs> and really, it happened to me like that. Every chapter, I, this is the, the wisdom of the logic of how the verses work together and one chapter followed the other, it, just, it was just so fascinating to, fascinating to me, and I felt... I was realizing, you know, the Gita Bhaktas, you know, sensibilities and so forth. Um, so it's a very good book. I mean, um, and there are a number of editions. Prophet's edition has a certain emphasis. Mine has a certain emphasis as well. Um, Prophet invited many uh, commentaries on the Gita. You may know the famous story of how Prophet asked, um, I think it was Hayagriva, what book should I write next? And... Um, and Hybeer said, I, I, don't, I don't know, Prabhupada, what book should you write next? And Prabhupada thought for a minute, he said, I'm thinking maybe the Gita. And Hayagriva said, Prabhupada, you already did the Gita. And Prabhupada said, oh, there can be so many Bhagavad Gitas. Hmm? 
Bhaktivinoda Thakur wrote two commentaries on the Gita. I have already thought of another commentary of the Bhagavad Gita, by the way, that I've been planning to write for years now. And I'm embarrassed by my edition, to be honest with you, all the things that should have been said that I didn't put in there that have now come to me as I read it and so forth. So such is the nature of the text, right? But it's a very good um, and introductory book. Amongst Alternative America, well, um, it has credibility. My, I've written a number of books, and my edition of the Bhagavad Gita is the best-selling book. of. It's in its fourth edition, hmm? fourth printing. When it came out, it was was reviewed by, you know, familiar with the magazine Yoga Journal? Hmm, it's a famous magazine. And it was called the Bhagavad Gita of the Year. So it's evidence of what I'm talking about in one sense, that this section of the public, they're very receptive to Bhagavad Gita. Hmm? And um, it's a, it's such a nice book. I like to speak of it as a book that about the nat- that speaks about the nature of being rather than believing. Hmm? This is its emphasis to differentiate it from, for the, for example, from the Bible or the, or the Quran, and give people some kind of the orientation to the sacred text of the East. Uh, it's quite different to talk about the nature of being in such a way that your eyes open to wow, yeah, that makes sense, and I'd never seen it like that, and it's right in front of me that compared to uh, a mandate to believe in a, in a particular miracle. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very, very different, and, uh, but there's a receptivity to that. There's, a, there's an audience for that. So Bhagavad Gita is a very good book. But I think that um, more than um, that, or along with that, that one of the things that you find in alternative America is that, that practitioners write books about their experience. Mm-hmm. That's what's very much made Buddhism very popular, that the practitioners, lay practitioners, have written about the texts uh, and the, the, the practice, the teaching, and how it has affected them on different levels of their being, if you will, psychologically, physically, spiritually, and so forth. And there's a shortage of, of, of that, that kind of voice from by Karnamrita's writing and uh, books and others here maybe perhaps that I may have forgotten as well um, those are there's a those kind of books will be very helpful I think to the uh, to the to the public too Bodhi Vaishnavism is so uh, rich so it, it, it bothered me after leaving Iskon to know that in, in social circles in alternative America it would be fashionable to say that, that you had spent your vacation at a Buddhist monastery, but it wouldn't have been so to say that I went to the Hare Krishna temple. Uh, you know, that it wasn't like, that wouldn't have been cool. And I thought, my God, I mean, it's just such a, you know, Krishna, Krishna conscience is so cool <laughs> compared to Buddhism, which is cool too, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, what's better, the head or the heart, you know, which is more, what has more to offer. You know, so Buddha's the wisdom, hmm? And Krishna is the heart, the romantic heart of the absolute. That's a far out idea. I mean, it's it has all the wisdom of the Buddha and 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 so much more as well. So so rich, and I mean the Beda Bed, the, the unity and difference is so uh, so rich, and it lends to so much to speaking about the tradition in very creative ways as well. Um, in other words, you can you can. You can, um, you know, if Advaita Vedanta is your background, you know, then you cannot speak and explain 
um, and it, it, the text in a non-literal way, because then everything, all the Leela will disappear. But if Advaita Vedanta, but if but if Veda Veda is your background, hmm? Hmm. you see, and that's what you find in the Goswami's writings. That's why they speak about the Leelas in different ways, and 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 they're just trying to speak about what is Dasya, what is Sakya, what is Batsalya, what is Madhurya, and so playing out the leelas in such a way that these sentiments are showcased and so forth very creatively. If you read, for example, the narrative of the Bhagavatam, the, the, the 10th canto, and then you read Gopal Chapu, you see Rupa Goswami is adding all these details and feelings and sentiments. He's, just, he's using a creative license, if you will, hmm? to, um, to showcase these bhavas and... Um, and so it's a, it's a, I want to call it like a, like a literal plus, if you will, or something like that, or a transliteral explanation. It was prompted, was, was very careful not to, to give a kind of a literal explanation because he thought that without such, you could go to Dvaita Vedanta and the Lila would disappear. But if, you're, if your background is, your foundation is Beta Bed, then it has to be a Lila. There has to be Lila. You cannot, there has to be. And so then um, it, uh, that understanding, uh, I think, uh, lends to speaking about the leelas of Krishna in a way that can be more, uh, find they can be, they sound more compelling, if you will, hmm? than um, ways of speaking about them in the past were different and were compelling in different circumstances. We live in a very different society today, with different sensibilities and so forth, so... And if you heard me speak about the Leela, it's rather, uh, um, it's with that in, in consideration. Hmm? So, at any rate, I think you know, there's, there's scope for lots of different um, uh, books, and uh, and I encourage uh, practitioners to to write. Um, and some of you are, are qualified, so you should do that. The bookshelves should be filled with Gaudiya Vaishnava books of uh, devotees speaking about their their experiences. That would be very compelling. Hmm. Does that help? Well, I mean... Um, Well, I would say that um what would I say I would say that um, I think it would be a good idea to popularize um some of our saints uh, in more contemporary saints, like I would think it would be good to write a book about bhakti Vinod, like make make him a, a figure like or be seen or thought of so like a Rumi for example hmm, is thought of in mm-hmm. Sufism mm-hmm. and so forth someone from our tradition this hmm. Bhakti Vinotaka was of course a family man he had 10-12 children and he was a magistrate and he was a mystic hmm. and so that's very interesting in itself and uh, so that would be something you know if you you have saints in your tradition so you have you have books about them this is a more of a contemporary saint i mean oh he's a hundred years ago or so plus um that would be popular those types of books about 
saints and their experiences, their insights, is, that has a lot of, um, uh, probably a broad uh, readership. So, um, but otherwise, I think that uh, the core books, and that seems to be your interest, which is fine, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, they, if we, if we were to follow the tradition, they all need to be commented on in our, in our times. Hmm? Not only the Gita, but the Bhagavatam. I'm writing now a commentary on the 14 seed verses of Chaitanya Charitamrita, the Mangal Charn of Chaitanya Charitamrita. I'm writing a commentary on those. I'm almost finished with it. Hmm? And I try to, it's a very, it's, of course, that's very core material, but I try to write about it so it's deep and it's broad at the same time. Because um, things come up in that commentary um, that could be like red flags, to, or excuse me, in the text to people that they need to, given the cosmo, you know, the view of modern cosmology and scientific thinking. And so you want to be a little bit aware of current, you know, thought and so forth to do this kind of writing. But at any rate, I think um, there need to be commentaries on the Bhagavatam. I would, I thought of doing a comment, I thought of doing a, like a, an edition of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu where you just take the verses of Rupa Goswami and, and not the, because if you give somebody the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, it's, it's a little bit, bit of a overwhelming to read. Hmm? And how it works, people have to, you know, figure out. So how it works, of course, is is similar to the Chaitanya Charitamrita, where you have Rupa Goswami's own verses, and then he supports them by various verses from Bhagavatam and so on. So you just write Rupa's verses hmm, without all the supporting Pramana verses, and then you comment on the, on it in such a way that that you include the essence of what the Pramana verses, the evidential verses from other texts say, and so that's like you know another you know whatever. Nectar of devotion was very hard for Prabhupada's disciples to read. They have told me many times, you know, you only read it so far and then you can't go any further. It's a, so it, it, it might be good to try to explain that a little bit more. That's a kind of a handbook, you know, of bhakti yoga. If you will. What is bhakti? In other words, what is bhakti? That's a book. What is bhakti? Hmm? Because bhakti is a popular idea, but what it is, hmm? that's another thing. The idea is about it. Even in a devotee community, are, it's not very well understood, and that's why some devotees don't advance very as readily because they don't understand what bhakti is, hmm? what that it, it is actually the sarup shakti of Krishna, for example. So that would be good. I thought of writing a book, <laughs> a lot of ideas <laughs> about um, of um, uh, what was I going to call it? Uh, Shrimad Bhagavatam. Uh, J- uh, what is it? What is it? Chaitanya Bhagavatam Saram or something. The essence of of the Bhagavatam. I wanted to take all the uh, the uh, the Bhagavatam slokas of Chaitanya Charitamrita, hmm? all the Bhagavatam slokas that are cited in Chaitanya Charitamrita, made a book out of those, and show how they connect and. Hmm. What the because all they're all they all support the points that are made in Bengali by Krishnadas, which would be a smaller book. It would be the Chaitanya Charitamrita is the distilled essence of the Bhagavatam. So you take those Bhagavatam verses. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also thought of the Chaitanya Gita to so to take the Gita verses that are used and make a 
the Bhagavad Gita from the Chaitanya's point of view, something like that. Hmm? See, so there's some creative ideas dealing with the original texts themselves. Um, I have other ideas too along those lines. Um, uh, but yeah, there's so many kinds of books, and we have very big. Uh, you know, our history is one of considerable literary legacy. So certainly, Prabhupada didn't want it to stop; he wanted it to go on. So I'm giving you a license to, <laughs> to think about that. <clears throat> yes. Uh, I really appreciate your uh, literary contribution. Mm. Um, and yet, uh, I know that she said and that um, many, many, many people have come to talk I'm reading her book. I'm understanding that you're still supporting. Right, yeah, yeah. We use them all the time. We read them all the time, of course. Yeah, yeah. We give lectures from them, so of course, yeah. I'm just saying there needs to be more books, and and, and also, you know, it's uh, it's uh, any book that's written by anyone, any acharya, will be very more potent in a particular time, hmm? because when you write a book, just like you take Prabhupada's Bhagavad you can see he had certain things in mind that he wanted to emphasize throughout. That's why he said there could be many editions of Bhagavad Gita. He was thinking of writing another one with other considerations in mind that he would like to emphasize and so forth. And so that's an important point, and that story illustrates the point. And so when you when you write a book, you know, then you think of all the arguments you can think of that you, you want to answer and address and so on and so forth, but new arguments come in the future and different ways of thinking about things and so forth. And, and so that's... That speaks as to the necessity of new books. Indeed, if, if there's sometimes the statement that uh, devotees like to cite of Prabhupada's that he said in passing uh, that my books will be the law of books for the next 10,000 years, right? You've heard that before, perhaps. Really, to be honest with you, that's an example of hyperbole because you cannot make a, that the centerpiece of your, of your um, um, book publishing house. Hmm? Because if you study Prabhupada's books over and over and over and over again, first of all, nowhere in his books does he say, these books will be the law books for the next 10,000 years. It's a passing statement. Hmm? And um, there's a context to it as well. But in the books themselves, repeatedly, 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 there's an emphasis on the idea, the principle, that preaching has to be done in consideration of time and circumstance. The time and circumstance that we live in now is so different from, I mean, there was no internet, you know, in 1969 and 1970 and so forth. And the world has changed dramatically. I mean, you probably, I grew up, you know, we saw TVs come into, you know, into being, and that changed the world. The internet has changed it considerably. But it's just one thing. As time goes on now, that the extent to which the world will change in 10 years will be the extent to which it changed in a hundred years previously because of technology and so forth. So it's a lot. And and to keep up with that is hard, but it's necessary to speak in a relevant way. And so this is 
this is the emphasis of problem is very practical, just very common sense. There, right, exactly. So that's why the, if you if you say you know read Prabhupada's books, you know you have to read that and you read you understand that that they they are as complete as they are because they include that idea, that principle in it that speaks of the necessity for other books. But people cite that in kind of like a like a literal way, and 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 I'm asking him, well, do you read them? You know, you might want to read them, maybe see what they say, and they, and so forth. So, but yeah, I mean, any of the books, what to speak, Prabhupada's books, of course, but you know, Rupa Goswami's books, the Chaitanya, these are, and these are Prabhupada's books, right? And basically, his books are mostly commentaries. Prabhupada said, I only wrote one book. That's what he used to say. That was the teachings of Lord Chaitanya. The others were commentaries, but of course, you know, they're all his commentaries. But we have a commentarial tradition that uh, that that for it to be alive and vital should go on. And um, and 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 here we are. Like I read Prabhupada's books, and then I like to read the previous, you know, Acharya's commentaries as much as they're available as well. And then I look at them both and see how they comment on different verses. And, so we 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 want that kind of wealth to uh, to continue. And as much as we aren't about to just say Rupa Goswami's books are something that should be retired and old on the shelf and now we have Prabhupada's. We, so we shouldn't say that about Prabhupada's either. And so it's not a doing away with with, with, with one, but to really to, to, to do what the one says, if you will, right? And be what the book is talking about, that advocating that we become, if we, could be, if we can become significant contributors to the tradition in in our time and circumstances we've read we're reading the we're reading Prabhupada's books and I mean you know and hearing them and it's, it's going in that's what I'm speaking about does that address your concern yeah yeah that's it's important I mean it's lost on a lot of devotees and there's a lot of religious fanaticism that are centered around misunderstandings I would think of things that Prabhupada said what his intentions were and and so from a lot of lack of just kind of common sense even. And, and that doesn't set an example that the public is going to be, you know, uh, very attracted to. They're going to look like, you know, quaint people that are interesting and cute and, yeah, and, you know, but that's about it. <laughs> we don't want that. Didn't Prabhupada say something uh, early, even in India when he was publishing and someone recommended a, uh, Fewer, uh, less frequent publications, and he said, he quoted somebody the uh, saying, "If I had a hundred million mouths, I couldn't even." Uh huh. Uh, that sounds accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. What is the, the first steps to lead of bhakti? The first steps of what? To lead of bhakti. Devotional. Uh huh. First step. Okay. The first step is that. Something is causing you to ask that question. So you've already taken the first step. <laughs> You're already on step two. <laughs> but, but what that step was, hmm, was that you associated with devotees of bhaktas, right? You associated with them. You find the, uh, the example, the idea is interesting. And so some little bit of... Um, Faith in that is coming in you, right? And there's a background to that also. Because of your psychology, and your psychology is formed by sunk scars. 
You know what a samskar is? Samskar is like an impression that we get. We do something long enough, we get a samskar for it, and then we'll have a tendency to act in that way, and it will carry into our next life and so forth. So the things that we do here, they affect people, just like this fire affects people, whether they you know, believe it or not. If you touch it, you'll get burned. So bhakti's alive. Hmm? And if you come in touch with it, then you're going to be affected by it, knowingly or unknowingly. So first we become in touch with it unknowingly, and then we, be, we, we have further contact with it in, in previous lives, and then in this life, hmm? to the point where we're in touch with it, and we, we, we know it, and we know something, we think it's interesting, and we know something about it, and, and then, then it goes from there, and this is by associating with other, other devotees, to where we actually think, you know, I would like to make this uh, my path, right? So that's kind of where you're at. So what the next step that you do is similar to the first step that you did, which was without even knowing you were taking it. You, you ran into some devotees and they affected you and so forth. So without consciously, so to speak, associating with devotees, now you should consciously associate with them, which is what you've done. We've come so far from, you know, we pay our pranam to you. You come all the way from Miami for this, to sit here in, this, uh, in the middle of nowhere, right? You know? <laughs> we are the absolute truth that's right here. You know? So, uh, so, um, so you're, you're, you're taking that step. Now, so then what's the next step, right? So now, in other words, you're associating with with uh, devotees, Vaishnavas, hmm, bhaktas, consciously, and you see the things they do, and you, you want to do those things. Or how to, uh, so what the next step is, is that in the context of that sangha hmm. of devotees, then you look for someone who, or you, you, you will, because you're paying attention, someone in that sangha stands out to you. Hmm? As an example, both in, 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 in well, it stands out by both precept and example, hmm? and so that becomes obvious to you, and then that you think that amongst the devotees, this devotee can help me the most. So I then it was called Guru Parado Guru Ado means a beginning. So this is the beginning. One has to come and sit before that person, with that person, and hear that this is the guru figure amongst the Vaishnavas. So, so who is a guru? You will decide. Hmm? You understand? That is your decision, who is a guru. <laughs> I saw a guy the other day on the Internet, on Facebook, announced that I'm announcing to everyone that I'm going to be a guru. <laughs> I didn't comment, but I felt like saying, well, let me know if anybody agrees with you, you know, <laughs> right? So just like I was saying uh, earlier that uh, maybe this morning that the form of Krishna, hmm, bhakti, it gives, gives shape. to without, without bhakti, God has no form. Hmm? In other words, in Nirvishesh Brahma, there's no bhakti. Hmm? No, there's no form there. Hmm? This is some people like to merge with Brahman and be alone forever, something like that. And uh, they may be liberated from the negative influences of karma, but they're not interested in loving and, and, and serving. And so there's no bhakti in Brahman. So 
though Brahman is not moving. Uh, but when there's bhakti, then we find the absolute is moving. Even though he's everywhere, which would mean you can't move, because hmm? you're already everywhere. He's moving. That is Krishna. God has leela. Just to speak on that a minute. It's, uh, some people reason and dwell that if you're full, why move? If you're happy, if you're content, if you have no needs, then why move? Shanti, shanti, shanti. You should be still. Hmm? Right? We, on the other hand, reason that if you're really full, then you will move in another way, not out of a need that, that, of a lack, but out of a fullness you will move. Then you will celebrate, I'm full. <laughs> so that is what we call lila. It's very, it looks like karma, but it's very different. Hmm? Karma is a movement out of necessity, a perceived necessity. I'm moving because I, I'm identified with matter, the body, and I think it, need, it needs th things, and I think I'm the body, so I think I need things, and so... I take, and I and as I take, I owe, and I'm implicated karmically. So some people reason, stop moving, hmm? stop taking, because you're going to owe if you do, and you'll, you're in negative numbers now, come to zero, hmm? and be full. Zero is positive in relation to negative numbers. But our question is, are there any positive numbers? Hmm? That's a very profound question, you understand, because it's so huge it's so huge to come to zero from negative numbers, to empty out all material desires, attachments, the whole problem of material existence is undone. I mean, it's huge. And you think, well, what else is there to ask after that? That's why it's billed as, this is enlightenment. That's it. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was asking, is there anything else in there? Anything positive to do? Are there any positive numbers? Right? That is bhakti. Hmm? Yeah. And... That is Leela. Hmm? So, that is what I say. There's a difference between loving to exist and existing to love. Hmm? Right? There's a difference. The, the, those who want to enter Brahman and have peace, peace is one thing. Love is another. For my generation, we wanted both. Peace and love. Right? <laughs> so, some people want only peace. We want peace and love. Hmm? So, all the peace that comes from loving to exist. In other words, now we exist in, 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 under threat. It appears that our existence is threatened. Hmm? Because we have, or we think I am this body and and it, it, it looks like if I don't move uh, and eat, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to cease to exist. So, so to, to, to sort that out, of course, and understand there's a difference between the body and the self, then you come to the point of loving to exist. I am, I am. Hmm? And it's to, to be self-realized. I am. It's a huge thing. So that so some school of transcendentalists, they love to exist. Hmm? But we are on the other side. We exist to love. That is bhakti. So that means there's movement in the absolute and transcendence and so forth. Right? So how do we get there? So, um, so, So yeah, well, we were talking about taking shelter of the guru and first step of bhakti, taking shelter of the guru. Of course, we have to learn learn these things, and um, and then we from the guru, of course, we learn how to serve, right? 
this is like uh, what is called bhajanakriya, the life of he gives or she gives different parameters that we, we live within, and they might be um, such that they are parameters that everyone is included within, and then within them they may be, it may be tweaked for individuals also should be as well. So we, we, we sit, we hear, Adogu um, Bhashra, we, we, we sit before the Guru, we express our doubts, our questions. We, we, I was saying, you find the Guru, you, you decide who is the Guru. That was my point. Hmm? I said, Bhakti gives shape to, to God. Hmm? Because there's Bhakti, God has a form. Hmm? Because you cannot love without an object of love. You cannot be an object of love without lovers hmm? to proclaim you as such, see you as such. In Brahman, there's no love. Hmm? There's no hate. There's no taking. Hmm? But there's nobody to give to either. Hmm? So in Brahman, this is a formless expression of the Absolute. Why is that God formless there? Because there's no bhakti. Where there's bhakti, and when, when of course, then you have to learn what is bhakti. Because jnanis will also talk about bhakti. They have a different idea of what is bhakti. We consider that a shadow of bhakti only. That is bhakti that will give you mukti. You understand mukti? Bhakti will give you liberation, free you from the karma, hmm? they say. So they're doing bhakti for mukti. We are not doing bhakti for mukti. We are doing bhakti for what? For bhakti. Yeah, well, you're right. We do bhakti for bhakti's sake. Hmm? That is a different thing. That is called shuddha bhakti, uttam bhakti. Hmm? Not sattviki bhakti. So even if that gani wants to be merged with Brahman, he needs some bhakti, sattviki bhakti. Hmm? So bhakti can give mukti, but mukti cannot give bhakti. <laughs> so there's your, your do the math. So so anyway, just as bhakti gives shape to God, therefore, their Krishna appears differently to different devotees. In Dwaraka, he will appear one way. In the Matura Lila, he'll appear another way. In the Vrindavan Lila, in another way. In Vaikuntha, in another way. What is the what is determining the different ways in which he appears? Different types of bhakti. Hmm? This is Beda Bed. You understand? Hmm. The love of God and God, they're one and different at the same time. So, in the same way that bhakti gives shape to to God, if you will, so... So you will give shape to the guru. So the guru is not a foreign, what I'm saying to you, principle. It's not something outside of you in one sense. It's coming actually from within you. Your earnestness, created by other devotees, arguably, of course, contagious as it is, makes you look and see then the particular eye, and you, you, you decide, this person can help me the most. Then that person has to respond to that. <laughs> and he's spoken, she's spoken, now they have to pay the price, right? And uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and accept a student. And so it's it's a beautiful thing. Hmm? I know, I, I might say it sounds so ominous, it's like you have to sit and take shelter of the guru, and it's like, oh, it doesn't, resonate well with our American independent sensibilities and so forth, but I want to say, like, I'm, it's not a foreign principle. Hmm? The Guru is actually that person in bhakti who speaks in such a way that we feel. That's how I feel. Hmm? I feel like that. 
and he or she is articulating in a way that I that I could not, and so I kept confidence that that they know how I feel, and they know it better than I do. So how I feel, what my sensibilities are, that they will be able to flourish in connection with such a person. Hmm? So we sit and hear from that person. We, 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 we make our claim, I want to hear from you, and then that person is obliged, so to speak, by the laws of love, you know, to give us shelter and help us and guide us and so forth and so on. And then um, at a certain point, like tomorrow, we're giving initiations to devotees, so some devotees. So they've been hearing from me for, you know, some time or at different degrees and so forth. And, and that's, you know, my call at that point, I think. So then, then we'll talk about that a little bit. So we take shelter of the guru, that is one thing. And then in the context of that, he gives what we call diksha, initiation, imparting the divya gyan, divine knowledge in the form of the mantra. And then he whispers that in the ear. He tells us, you should live like this, not like this. There's some basic parameters. And then and then for our group, he says, and come to the festival. Drive 12 hours. And, <laughs> yeah. Does that help? Something like that. 